Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Here at How to Money, we're always encouraging listeners to think about some of the different ways they can earn some money on the side to reach their financial goals. And guess what? While you're away, your home could also earn extra income. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. Yeah, hosting is a lot easier than you might think, and you don't need to Airbnb a whole house. You can just host your extra spare room. So consider becoming an Airbnb host, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Upswell Marketing would like to remind listeners that most people don't belong to two gyms. They don't see two dentists or trust two auto repair shops. So when customers choose your small business over your competitors, they're really choosing you. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads. And in fact, that formula and media mix has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. And new customers receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking buying existing businesses to make millions with Cody Sanchez. That's right, we are pumped to be talking with baller entrepreneur Cody Sanchez today. But the truth is, it, it took a while for Cody to get here because uh, years ago, right out, of, right out of college, Cody was working like 70-hour work weeks for a paycheck. And even though she had a, she had a great ed- education, she had an elite job, she felt like her life was out of control. But now things are different. Cody is financially independent. She owns uh, something like 26 small businesses. And she's the founder and CEO of Contrarian Thinking, where she basically she's on a mission to free the minds of individuals who are hanging on to traditional careers. Uh, and they're also hanging on to the, the common narrative of what it means to be successful. And oftentimes that can be via buying existing businesses. This is more feasible than you might think to achieve. So Cody, we are excited to talk with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to talk about all of the things that we just mentioned, plus a whole lot more. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're glad to have you. And I think Matt was actually wrong. I think Cody bought two businesses while you were doing the introduction, Matt. So maybe she's at 28 now. I don't know. <laughs> 28, 29. Right. Who can count? Who can count anymore? Well, uh, Cody, the, the first question we ask anybody who comes on the show is what they like to splurge on. It helps us learn a little more about them. But Matt and I, we're being smart with our money, saving and investing for our futures. But we still like to spend a lot of money on a good craft beer. What's your What's something you splurge on? What's your craft beer equivalent? 
I got a weird thing, maybe not so weird these days, for crystals. <laughs> like, oh. I live in Austin, Texas now. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Sounds you know, very hippie. I'm just letting that very hippie. You know, if there's like some overpriced gift shop somewhere with some shiny amethyst something or other, I'm going to probably buy it for 200 bucks. <laughs> and my husband's going to ridicule me mercilessly. So, you know, a little bit finance, uh, a, a little bit uh, hippie. Okay, so it I makes like me it. think of Hank from Breaking Bad when he was at one point like uh, laid up in bed. He was like buying all those crystals and stones off the internet. Is that is that you? Yeah, that's basically me. It's <laughs> okay. like you know that there, I saw a great meme. It was like, God, look at those idiot kids with their light up shoes, thinking that they're running faster with them on. And then it's like me buying a crystal and putting it outside so that I you know, have a healthier week this week. It's like that, that's where we're at basically in life. <laughs> Gotta recharge suspension this. Suspension of belief. That's, so I did not even know this entire, like it's an entire subculture. And recently our family, we, we hiked up a local mountain and up on top of the mountains over on some of these rocks, there were some crystals set out. And I was like, what in the world are these? Our, our kids were wanting to play with them. They're like, can we have these? I was like, I don't, no, 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 no. I think you should leave those alone. I think those, <laughs> those are, are somebody else's. And my wife, she filled me in and she's like, actually, we had, there, there was like a special moon recently. And she's like, I think somebody left them out to essentially like recharge uh, overnight. Like, wow, is, is, okay. Does that sound familiar? I don't know. You know, I, I believe it. I, okay. I don't know anything about horoscopes or like what crystals actually do. It's just a weird quirk yeah. of mine. Um, <laughs> so, yes. But I think, you know, I was actually reading that the crystal business, because that's where I always go to, but basically crystals, tarot cards, all that nonsense, had one of the fastest growth rates ever in 2021. Wow. And in fact, I was in LA this weekend, this perfect LA story, and I was walking <laughs> down um, like Venice, the, the main street, whatever that's called, Abbot Kinney, and there was this crystal store, and the crystals were crazily priced all over the place, and there was a sign that said, closing sale or whatever, and I'm like, oh, crystal business, tough, huh? <laughs> and they're like, oh no, actually, we're, we're opening up three new larger stores wow. on the street. Yeah. You can imagine, Abbot Kinney is the most expensive I believe, rent per square foot street in the country besides like, now besides South Congress in Austin. Oh, okay. wow. Holy cow. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was going to say other than like Fifth Avenue up in New York or something like that. But yeah. I think it's higher. I thought, I thought you were going to make a inflation crystals joke with them going out of business. <laughs> but no, it seems like they're doing just fine. Yeah. They're uh, crushing it. At the very least, they are pretty. Uh, and I'm glad that that's something that you that you like to splurge on. We are not going to hate on that at all. Cody, let's talk. Okay. Because before you were a serial business owner, you were a journalist. Uh, you reported from the U.S.-Mexico border, and it seemed like that that actually motivated you to pursue a career in finance. Is that, is that right? Um, I, would, I would love for you yeah. to connect the dots uh, for us, for our listeners. Yeah. So, um, like lots of young college students, I think, I had grandiose plans about changing the world. And I thought that one of the best ways to do that might be to be a journalist. And specifically, I wanted to be a conflict journalist along the U.S.-Mexico border, dealing with things like human trafficking, drug smuggling. This was like 2006, 7, 8, something like that. And I was writing stories about some some of the horrible things that were happening along the U.S.-Mexico border. And I had a grant from the Howard Buffett Foundation, which is Warren Buffett's uh, kid, actually. And I wrote a couple stories that were I thought were pretty decent. They got picked up. We won a couple awards, me and, and some of the other journalists that worked on them. And oddly enough, what I realized is that, you know, I had this 
opportunity to drum up a bunch of awareness about an issue, but nothing actually changed. So all the awareness in the world couldn't change the fact that these terrible things were happening down south. And so I had my little like quarter life crisis at, you know, 21 years old or whatever and realized, you know, my last name is Sanchez, these people's last name is Sanchez. What's the difference? It's this one thing green. And hmm. uh, and I wanted to understand the language of money. And that's why I ended up going into finance because I think money is the thing that changes lives. It's not just where you're born, it's not the country that you're in, you know, it's can you understand this language of money? Hmm. Well, and Cody, you're a you're a second gen generation immigrant. Is that correct? That's right. I am. Uh, so you know, my family's from Spain, and then I have family that's that's from Latin America as well. And so, I, I suppose I, that seeing my family sort of come over and struggle and strive and grow was a big influence on me getting to where I am today. Sure, also, there's yeah. really cool stats for Hispanic Heritage Month on just like how Latinos work in the US and the percentage of workforce that they are. I'm not into, um, you know, I, I think all humans are more alike than not, but uh, it is cool to look at, you know, where your heritage is. And I love anybody who loves to labor. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's something to the reality that the numbers bear out that second generation immigrants are more successful than the rest of the American population, yeah. right? Even if you're third, fourth, fifth generation, you've been here a long time, you, it seems like maybe you have all of the inherent privilege of, of someone maybe who has you know, deep family connections to this country, but second gen generation immigrants end up being, they make a, end up uh, being most successful in business and making more money. Like, why do you think that is? I think you can't teach desire. That's something that my father always said mm. to me. And so a lot of times what I've found in hiring, gosh, now hundreds, if not, I don't know, maybe thousands tangentially of, of people across my career is that there's nothing that you can substitute for desire and curiosity. I will take somebody who wants it and somebody who is curious to learn and iterate and change over somebody who has innate ability or in intellect uh, nine times out of 10 for the type of businesses that I do. And I found that they say that what makes most people succeed, I think it was Angela Duckworth's study from the University of Pennsylvania about grit being the mm -hmm. number one number one indicator for whether somebody would succeed long term and it, whether it was startups or business in general, I'm unsure. But um, that I think is the difference is, you know, the desire is really innate in immigrants because if lack is that close to you, you know, if, if you've ever spent time, like really spent time, I'm not talking about going to Cancun and Acapulco and going to, you know, Medellin and Bogota, but if you spent time in Latin American second and third and fourth tier cities and seen the just difficulty that is living, then when you're presented with an opportunity to actually really grow something here in the US, you want it badly because you know what the alternative is and yeah. you're willing to do a lot to get to it. So I wish I could give everybody a second gen immigrant mentality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it, it is true. It's there, there is something weird too about second gen because it's not only the fact that second gen are, are more successful than like maybe say first gen, but even third generation, right? Like yeah. there's something about, it's like there's a seeing your parents of seeing your yeah. parents sacrifice and the, the the steps that they had to take and, yeah. and probably work two or three jobs in many cases yeah right? i think there's yeah there's something really cool there's something really powerful can i harass you on one other point there of course Which is, please think about they talk about wealth transference with mm -hmm. the really really wealthy so they say you know the first generation makes the money the second generation retains and grows the money and the third generation loses it 
And so I think it's similar with an immigrant mentality. If you're talking about generational wealth, there's a reason why I don't anticipate leaving a ton of our cash to our kids because I think that's a huge disservice typically. They need to – imagine this. Like you graduate from high school and you're given a BMW or a Mercedes-Benz and then you go get a job that is the annual equivalent salary to that car that you were given when you were 16 years old. Now that car breaks down and the first car that you can buy is a Miata for $5,000. Like it just it doesn't make you want to work more when you've started so high you've got to reverse and then grow again. Yeah. So I, I think you're exactly right. Second gen immigrants and then, you know, wealth transfer being with the first or second generation definitely makes you think twice about passing on wealth to, to future generations. Makes you want to think long and hard uh, <laughs> before you even start hinting at what you might leave to your kids. And purposefully imposing hardships on your kids, not, yeah. you know, not making them necessarily like army crawl through the mud, but not giving them everything <laughs> that, you know, you wish maybe you would have had even, even st- like, I don't know. I see, I see it as building up an ethic in, in my kids by not giving them the things yeah. maybe that we could give them. Totally. So Cody, you, you ended up working on Wall Street while you, you were there. You had uh, a couple of, you know, like fancy schmancy jobs. <laughs> you even worked for one of our favorite companies, Vanguard, actually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're kind of talking smack about some of these big banks, some of these big companies, but like, it wasn't all that bad, was it? Were there some, some pros to being there on Wall Street and and learning and and working? Of course. If you want to start out and get a free, almost free sort of MBA training without having to go get an MBA, I think getting into a training program at a company like Vanguard, Deloitte, you know, Goldman, any of the consulting companies like BCG is probably one of the fastest accelerants to your career out there. You are learning on somebody else's dime. The interesting part for these big companies is they spend a ton of money on their higher level new hires. So I learned a lot on Vanguard's dime. I learned a lot on Goldman's dime and State Street's dime, and they have a ton of resources for you. I don't think you want to end your career by and large at a huge corporation. I really like the idea of you starting it there if you're the type of person who's going to take advantage of all of the resources surrounding them. Then the second thing is, you know, less for Vanguard and more for, let's say, Goldman, being around people who are incredibly intelligent, smarter than I was you know, pretty pedigreed, helped soften some of my edges, given I didn't know much about money coming into this industry at all. And I didn't know about doing deals. And I didn't know, you know, what it was like to be with a bunch of kids that went to Harvard and Stanford and Yale, etc. You know, I was a public school kid. And so being in these big corporations where they require a lot of edge softening, I think has helped me later on. And now I can say, ah, you know, if I want to wear cutoff shorts and crop tops, I'll do it. But I know how to dance you know, in cufflinks and suits too. <laughs> so was that what made you leave? Was it, hey, I want to be able to wear whatever I want? Or what made you leave a place where you felt like you got a good education? The salary was pre- pretty meaningful. What made you say, now nah, it's time to get out and go do my own thing? A wild thing happens once you've had a taste of freedom in work. Yep. <laughs> which is at a certain point, you become unemployable. <laughs> And that's what happened to me. I became unemployable, really. I had run a couple of business divisions inside of one of these big companies, and I was doing really well, and the business was growing like crazy. And then because of some bureaucracy inside of the business, they basically said, oh, we got to change it this way, we got to do it this way. And I said, that makes no sense whatsoever if our goal is to grow the business and make money in an ethical way that aligns with our company mission. So four parameters, this hits all of them. Why would we do this asinine thing? And they said, B, 
because that's what the company wants to do, they did just have a bunch of consultants come in, and so we're actually going to realign this business. And that's when I realized I couldn't really shut up about it. I pushed back about that idea, and I said, I want to go build this myself. And I, I do think that's what happens after a period. If you're really sort of type A, you're meant to run and build businesses, you're going to be at a certain point really hard for somebody else to employ. You became unemployable. I, I just like that phrase. I feel like lot. that's where I'm at now that we've been working for ourselves for <laughs> yeah, like uh, yeah. a few years. Which, and I'm like, which, I, how do I go back and work for the man? Yeah. You can't. Like once you get a taste, I mean, this is this is going to kind of date us a little bit. We're, we're all kind of old millennials here, but like it makes me think of the Matrix. And once you have a taste of what it's actually like uh, outside of the... Doesn't matter how good the steak tastes <laughs> inside the Matrix, you can't go back. You want to be able to fly, yeah. but like not everybody can see it that way. You know, like I'm guessing a lot of folks assumed that you were crazy once you were like, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore. Instead, I'm going to go buy this business like a laundromat. I'm going to go buy a laundromat. That's what I do now. (laughs) Where people are like, "Uh, Cody, you're nuts. What are you doing? Why are you throwing it all away? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure you all can relate. But throughout my career, I think I've known I've made the right decision typically because each time I made a move, somebody said that I was out of my mind. And so, you know, when I left journalism, got some offers from great newspapers that a bunch of other people wanted and said, no, I'm going to go into Vanguard's training program, people thought I was nuts. Then when I left Vanguard, good paying job, I was being promoted in all these ways, my mom was basically crying. Then when I Mm. left uh, Goldman, you know, cream of the crop, it's the top of the industry to go to State Street and run a business in Latin America, again, I was crazy. Then when I did it to go to First Trust, and when I went into private equity, I mean, every single time, people have basically said, the grass is not always greener, be careful. And what I've realized is that, at least for me, the point of life is an accumulation of experiences and skills that build me a really fun life resume that I'm glad to have read at some point in which I go underground. And so I never really worried about if I was making the wrong decision because I thought the experience and the skill set was really interesting in and of itself. And if the thing that I was going to go do worked out, awesome. That said, I have never been the type to be able to rip off the Band-Aid and just quit easily. You know, I always had to mentally really ponder it for some time and ensure that that was the right move and how could I de-risk it. So sure, everybody thought I was crazy just about every single time. And um, even when I, you know, finally, finally left to go build a media company and I rescinded, you know, my partner position and at a, at a private equity firm of which I was one of the, you know, main members, they really thought I was crazy for going to start a, you know, quote unquote blog. And, <laughs> and it's so behold, much more than that, guys. It doesn't sound great when you yeah. put it like that, but. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Now people are sort of getting it. But I'm sure, like all of us who are creators, they're like, wait, you're going you're gonna to leave to go talk with your buddy on Zoom calls and people are going to listen to that, <laughs> aka a podcast, right? So, yes, every time they thought I was nuts. And I think that's when you know you're doing something interesting. Yeah, for sure. Well, I like how you, you mentioned the word de-risk in there because there's a way you can do it with zero dollars in the bank and you can make it a really <laughs> risky endeavor where you might have to go hat in hand back to your old boss two weeks later. Uh, but there's a way that you can do it with um, some runway, some financial runway, so that you actually have a chance to succeed and build that business. But I want to know too, one of the things you've done that you've become very successful doing is buying other people's businesses. So 
I, we want to talk about that a lot today. What made you decide that it made sense to start buying other people's uh, businesses that they had created at, when you could have like just started some of these businesses yourself? I'm curious to know like the, the value proposition there. I'm a numbers person. And so when I looked at my goal, I want to be a billionaire. I want to create billion dollar empires. Money to me is a game. It's kind of like a scoreboard. And then you can take you know, the outcome of that game, the money that you've won, and use it as a tool to architect the world that you want to see. I like that idea. And so when I thought, okay, if I want to play billion dollar games, I don't want to play small guy games. I want to play billion dollar games because at the end of the day, they're all the same. One's just a level 10 activity and one's a level one activity. And so if that's the truth, then where is more wealth created than anywhere else? And what I would argue is that more wealth is created in private equity than in any other industry. It's created more Forbes billionaires than any other industry. And I mean that loosely defined by people who actually run private equity firms, people who do hold co's a la Warren Buffett, um, people who do acquisition strategies in order to grow their business a la most of the large companies in the S&P 500, including Amazon and Apple and Google and et cetera. And so I realized, wait a second, why are all of the smartest, wealthiest people out there buying businesses? Because the numbers, they work. And so I thought if the game is the same, if they're buying a billion dollar business or a multi-billion dollar business, why can't I apply those strategies that I learned in private equity to a small business? Then I don't wanna go bankrupt on my first deal, so what business could I buy that I could understand probably 100% of the time that would be what I call a gateway drug business, uh, a, a business that's easy to start with, that then I could replicate and buy more and more of them and cash flow off those businesses, and they would act like assets for anything else. And so that's why. It's a billion-dollar game that's created more billionaires than any other industry, and if you're going to play a game, you might as well pick one that's a level 10. I like it. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of this episode talking about. Specifically, we're going to dive into how to go about buying somebody else's business because, Cody, we've got a lot of folks listening and they are looking for more of that gateway business, <laughs> that, that gateway drug of businesses. Uh, and so we're going to ask you a bunch of questions pertaining to how exactly to go about that right after this break. I think there are a lot of folks who start small businesses and they're surprised at the amount of behind the scenes, the admin type work that they're not all that thrilled about. Getting your books together with, uh, with some final figures so that you can file your corporate taxes, for instance. That's something we've been in the middle of. But it can really gum up the gears, potentially keeping you from doing the work you love. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000. 25 and one. That's right. Yeah. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. 
There's a lot of power in the simplification of having all that information in one place. Helps you make better decisions. That's right. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash howtomoney. That's netsuite.com slash howtomoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash howtomoney. So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned. And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty, or you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. A big part of being a responsible adult is taking care of the things you care about. For instance, my bike that I ride in to work on. I keep the tires pumped. I keep the chain greased. Gone are the days of leaving your bike out in the rain for weeks at a time, like a kid. (laughs) Simply put, the things futures are built around are the things worth protecting. And making an estate plan now means gaining security of your assets and peace of mind for you and your loved ones. With Trust & Will, you can create and manage a custom estate plan starting at just $199. Go to trustandwill.com slash howtomoney for 10% off plus free document shipping. As the primary breadwinner for our family, I've taken the steps to ensure that Kate and the kids that they're going to be taken care of if something terrible happens to me. Each will or trust is state-specific and customized to your needs. Their simple step-by-step process guides you from start to finish with ease. So get the peace of mind you deserve by creating your estate plan with Trust & Will. Secure your assets and protect your loved ones with Trust & Will. Get 10% off plus free shipping of your estate plan documents by visiting trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. That's 10% off and free shipping at trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. All right, let's keep rolling. We're talking with Cody Sanchez about buying other people's businesses in order to make serious money. And the, the one of the coolest things about this strategy, I think, Cody, is that it's endlessly replicable. It's not like our listeners are competing against you, right? Unless they live in your neighborhood, typically. There are there are millions and millions of small businesses. So I guess I want to know about demographics for a second. It, it, it certainly seems like we're in 
a time of abundant opportunity for people to more than ever be looking into the strategy of buying other people's businesses in order to make money. Would you say that we're in like a, a demographic windfall for a lot of people to really think about this strategy? Yes. <laughs> I am writing a book right now that I'm loosely titling The Three Waves, which basically talks about this idea that there are three corresponding waves that are happening that I think together create a bit of a tsunami. First wave, great resignation. We've all heard this. People our age, they want meaning. They don't want to work for the man anymore. They want something to matter after going through a pandemic and a lot of proximity to death. Then we've got the great retirement. Boomers are aging out and boomers happen to own more small businesses than any other segment. Mm. And then simultaneously, we've got this great corporatization, which I sort of made this term up, which I think means we have big businesses becoming a bigger and bigger portion of our lives and the S&P. And yet we now have this pushback. We don't want to live in these you know, big urban cities anymore. We don't want to really go to McDonald's and Starbucks anymore. We have this feeling of localness and community we're more interested in because lots of people are moving to smaller communities. And so the idea that I have is what if by buying small businesses, what you can do is you can actually take advantage of these three waves. You can have an immediate impact upon your community and you can have more corner stores than Walmarts. Wouldn't that be an incredible trend. And I think that's what's happening right now. An ability to buy businesses because they're being transitioned out, do good while you're doing it, become an owner and cash flow. And there's obviously something incredibly fulfilling and gratifying about supporting these main street businesses yeah. and not only funneling your dollars towards towards Wall Street. I'm sure that's a, a huge part of like, I guess, like the lifestyle side of it that makes you feel really good about what it is that you're doing as well, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think it serves anybody by having such a small percentage of the population own so much of the business that we touch every day, the businesses that we touch every day. And that is increasingly what happens. And it's a skill and knowledge deficit. And so, you know, we're seeing right now, I think, commoditization or easy access to buying businesses in a way that we saw 20 years ago with real estate. You know, before Zillow, Redfin, before mm. MLS, it wasn't so easy to go and buy single family homes and understand what the market was for that. I think in the future, it will be perhaps not as easy, but it will be much easier to buy businesses. And we're already seeing a bunch of technology that supports that thesis. Well, yeah. Talk to us about you know what it takes to find a business that makes sense to buy. Like, Where should listeners be looking uh, if they are interested in, in buying a business? This, like you said, everybody knows to go to Zillow if you're looking to, to buy a home or Redfin, something like that. Where do you go if you're looking to, looking to buy a business? <laughs> the best place to buy a business right now is not on the internet. Similar to a hip pocket listing or you know a, an off-market deal, that is the best place to buy a business. And the way that I teach people to buy a business is all about proximity. So let's say that we are going to buy a business for Joel and Matt. What would Joel and Matt's perfect business be? It's going to be different Oop, than Cody's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to be different than Cody's business. And I'll use an example of this guy named JK, who's relatively public. He's kind of like a Twitter growth guy. He was tweeting about stuff on the internet frequently and doing consulting, right? So he's making, you know, a couple thousand bucks a month off each client, telling them how to grow on Twitter. 
Well, he started using this tool that I'll leave the name off of it, but a Twitter growth tool. And that Twitter growth tool, he realized wasn't growing so fast, but he really liked it. And he thought that his suggestions could make the tool better. So he reached out to the owner of the business and said, hey, I think I could grow your business because I know about Twitter growth. I could get you a bunch of other people, uh, but I want part equity in the business. Can I give you some cash matched with the growth that I will give you through new clients and own a meaningful percentage of the business and we could do it together. That I think is a, there's like sort of four tiers to business buying. That is a level four or a tier four way to buy a business, which is you're using your unfair advantage uniquely in an area in which you have some personal expertise. Hmm. And then there's the tier one way to do it, which would be the lowest, most entry level way to do it. And that would be by going to sites like biz by sell, LoopNet, Flippa, e-commerce flippers, Quiet Light Brokerage, all of which would be the equivalent to a Redfin or Zillow for buying a business, just not as good because none of these sites are, are great at this stage. And that's just straight up dollars for a business that is showing a certain amount of income. And so you have to kind of take what you can get. You're looking at pickings that are publicly available. And whereas you're talking about the level four is, it seems like there's more of a network effect involved there, right? That some, I guess, like my question is, how important is networking in this process? And and maybe I don't know what suggestions do you have for folks to grow their network to increase their chances of success as they're like interested in buying a business? And you said proximity, so likely local to where they live, right? So it's up to you. The the bigger your network has, and the more you are willing to specialize in your search, probably the better deal you'll get with the higher return. If you want to just buy something that's on market, like let's say a laundromat in your local area, I think it's pretty easy to do the thing that most people don't do, which is go around to local laundromats and try to get in touch with the owners and start talking to them about their business and tell them that you're looking to buy one. And I would pretty much guarantee you that after you talk to 20 of them, you're going to find one to five that are interested in selling. Hmm. Someone's tired of owning a laundromat out there, you know? (laughs) Yes. There's a lot of people who have, you know, think about it this way. Most people are like, why would somebody sell a business for two to three X profit that, you know, is kind of passive and making them a hundred K a year? Nobody's ever going to sell that. And then I ask them, uh, are you going to keep your job for 40 years? The same job that you have today, you will not be promoted, you will not change positions, your title will remain the exact same. Will you keep it for 40 years? And the answer is no. We've seen as a society, two to five years, increasingly more like three to four. And so it's the same for business owners. At some point you're like, all right, I ran a laundromat, it was cool, I added a few on, that was cool, now I'm gonna sell it to somebody else, I got this other business that I wanna start. It's a progression, just like you don't stay in the same house your entire life either. And so there's plenty of people that wanna sell for what are called the five Ds. So, you know, death, divorce, disaster, despair, just meaning like something going wrong in the business, et cetera, or uh, the fifth D is something goes sideways in the business, but I can't remember what the exact D is. So like um, your business has a uh, disgruntled partnership issue or something like that. So for all those reasons, people are constantly wanting to sell their business. It's just, are you finding the right person at the right time? Makes a ton of sense. Also, side tangent, Cody, did you happen to watch Everything Everywhere All at Once? 
takes place within a laundromat. <laughs> it kind of gives you an, an inside look. Really? Uh, how soul-sucking that might, that industry might actually be. But <laughs> well, as an entrepreneur, you can make money running one. It was the, it, yeah, it, it, the basis of the uh, entire movie kind of surrounded the this laundromat that this family owned. Also just it, a fantastic movie. It's mind. a v- really trippy out there kind of movie. I think you might like it. Uh, one of those films by A24. Um, sorry. <laughs> i But uh, okay, so once you found a business that you think could make you some money that that might run well like how do you know that is a good one like how do you know that it's going to make sense is there a is there an easy way to crunch the numbers for folks who might be used to running their own books right like they're good at running you know joel larsgaard llc joel's really good at his own money but it takes a little extra when it comes to running a business what are some things folks should be looking at 100%. First of all, I think you should really spend the first 30 to 60 days learning how to do acquisitions before you do them. It's not necessary, but the last thing that you want to have happen is have your first deal be a bad deal. Because then you're going to think buying businesses is a bad idea and you're not going to realize, no, 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 you just made a mistake in how you did it the first time. Mm-hmm. So my caveat would be, it really should be for anything in life, but it's very easy to go and place a trade on Robinhood, right? You don't really have to learn too much about it. You can go read a couple analyst reports, no problem. With buying a business, there's more complexity, which means that there's more opportunity because there's a barrier to entry. With that same thought, though, like you could go to unconventionalacquisitions.com. We have a blog of a bunch of free tools on how do you analyze a business? How do you break down if a business is worth it or not? How do you hire an operator? Um, All the things that you would probably think of as objections or reasons why you wouldn't do it, we try to talk about in in our free blog. And there's a weekly newsletter that comes out, you can get on the list. But quick, down and dirty, if you only do three things, it would be this. One, you want to look at historical tax returns in tandem with their P&L. So you just want to make sure that what they're telling you in their profit and loss statement is what's on their tax return. So are the numbers real? Two, businesses, in my opinion, sub $5 million in revenue, typically trade at a profit multiple of two to let's give it like 6x. So if I'm making 100K in profit in my pocket in a business, I should be selling that business for anywhere from let's call it 200 to $600,000. So now you've got kind of a rough valuation. Okay. And then the third thing is you have to understand there's usually in every business like 20% of the numbers drive 80% of the return. Meaning if I have a laundromat, I really want to understand what the lease is and how long I'm locked in because it's expensive to put in the piping and all the washing machines and whatever. You need a long lease. If I'm a laundromat also, what are going to be my biggest expenses? My equipment, certainly, and then utilities, water and electricity for washing and drying. So you need to get to the meat of whatever it is that you're buying, and that's where you can de-risk the most. There's probably like 20 or 30 other main things you should be looking at, but these top three will get you quite far. It's kind of like you don't want to be buying the expensive baseball team when all of the the contracts of the biggest stars are set to expire (laughs) and you're like, (laughs) you might have just bought the crappiest baseball team now that they're all like set to walk or or set to get paid a lot more, right? Um, I guess let's talk about negotiating because yeah, you said there's this sweet spot somewhere between 2x or 6x the earnings but um yeah how, how do you go about negotiating a fair price and figuring out what that is i'm sure a lot of that is relational but there, there have to be like standards too that you could point to in order to kind of push for a, a better price for you for the business you want to buy a lot of meat here so i think one of the most important things or valuable things for your career you could do is learn to negotiate 
If you can learn to negotiate, it'll be applicable in everything you do in life and you'll just make more money, period. If you spend time learning how to do what I call deal making or the people called negotiation. So let's just say that first. If you needed to spend some time on that, I would read like, you know, Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. I would actually read some of Trump's books. He has that one book that God, I can't remember what the, the name of it is. I know people don't like him as a human, but what he's really good at <laughs> is that uh, he's really good at dealing with discomfort in negotiation, which is an incredibly important part of it. And then I would also go and read as many case studies as I could about negotiation. So if you've done those three things, then I think beyond that, the next step is basically where most people screw up in negotiating businesses is don't don't get caught up on the price in the beginning. In any negotiation for buying a business, there's two main factors, price and terms. Everybody focuses on price. What you should really focus on is terms. Think about it this way. Joel and Matt, I'm going to buy your podcast for a billion dollars. Do oh, you thanks, want that Cody. deal? Great. Right? Yes. I'll thanks. take it. You'd say yes. What if I changed it and said, okay, great. You said yes, we signed the paperwork, but the terms are I'm going to pay you a billion dollars, 25 cents a day over the lifetime of that billion dollars. I'm never going to get this money, Cody. Like, now I don't like, like Joel you. Joel is just focused on the price, not the terms. <laughs> right. So now Joel has done a bad deal. Bad yeah. job, Joel. And so what you really have to focus on is you can say, in the beginning, I usually set the tone so that the seller doesn't get crazy with their expectations of saying, hey, Businesses that do what you do typically sell for around two to six X, depending on uh, how clean the balance sheet is, what the SOPs are inside the business, how much revenue you guys do. I just want to set the tone. That's typically what businesses like this sell for. Now, uh, I don't really want to talk about price in the beginning because I want to get into a partnership with whoever's selling me this business. You know, this is this will be a relationship that we will have for at least a few months, if not years. So we need to make sure that we do this in a way that makes sense. So I kind of set the tone, which is called priming. So you're going to prime them that they're not going to get 10x their revenue for a business. It's just not going to happen simultaneously. And you're setting the range. So maybe the range you even say is two to three x instead of two to six x. You've now allowed you've you've narrowed their aperture. But the next thing you're going to do is say, but 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 I don't want to talk about price. No 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 no. I don't want to talk about price. I want to talk about you and your business. We'll get to all that stuff later. And so the big thing that you should do up front is not over index on what is the cost. It's totally different than real estate, in which cost is the only question. Hmm. Okay, so you're telling us to, to downplay costs, focus on the terms. Uh, what about folks? So there might be a lot of folks listening who are thinking, all right, this, this all sounds awesome. I don't have the cash on hand. Uh, that does, regardless of what a business might be selling uh, their business for, how can I actually go about making that purchase happen? Um, like, what are some of the different creative ways, I guess, that, that folks can think about purchasing some of the different businesses that are out there? I use something called the Get Rich Tripod, which is an awful name that I came up with, but you know, clickbait. But basically, <laughs> the idea is there's three legs to a tripod, right? The way to do a deal and get financing is to use one of the three legs, if not all three. So the legs are time, expertise, money. So let's say somebody listening wanted to go and buy a car wash, and they have time, but they have no experience on car washes, and they have no money. How do you get that deal done? Well, you, if, if I was you, I'd say you focus on the time factor. So you do the due diligence on the deal, you understand the industry, you put together a business plan on why to buy it. Then you go find somebody who has cash. That somebody could be 
the SBA, the Small Business Association, would get which gives loans to small business buyers because you have a business plan and a uh, valuation that you think is reasonable for the business. You're going to take it to basically the SBA and say, will you give me money? Will you loan me money for this? You can also do what's called seller financing, which is put together that same thing and say to the owner, hey, I'm going to run this business. I will put up some percentage of the total purchase price, let's say 10 to 20 to 50%. But the other X percent, I want you to carry in a seller's financing note over a two to three to five year period, which basically means if I'm going to buy your business for 200K, I might put down 100K, let's say, and then tell you I'm going to pay you back the next 100K, 50,000K, $50,000 a year over a two year period from the profits of the business. And the the way to do those two is interesting because 60% of small businesses are sold with some type of seller financing, meaning Hmm. that the sellers are relatively used to the ask that, hey, if I'm going to buy your business, I expect you to carry some of my risk in the purchase price. It's pretty gotcha. normal. And okay, so that's so th- one leg of the, the tripod. The other two, th- you just flip it. If you have money, you use that. You use somebody else's time and expertise. If you have expertise, you find somebody else with time and money. And so that business owner is kind of actually expecting you to not have all the cash and to maybe have to to wait <laughs> to get back to get some of your investments um, as you take over and run the company for a certain period of time. I guess too, we're talking about we've talked about some physical businesses here. We've talked about laundromats. You mentioned car washes. Are are there like non physical businesses that you can do this sort of things thing with that maybe might even cost less? I mean, you mentioned the Twitter growth tool. Are, are like what about websites or blogs or buying other people's online businesses? Is is that something that you've worked in or that you encourage other people to check out? Absolutely. I buy a lot of online businesses. So um, no real difference between online and brick and mortar businesses. The only difference is they're a little bit more competitive to buy because people can buy them anywhere. Um, They also are typically a a little bit more de-risked in some ways because they API right into their financials. So, you know, if you guys tell me we have a website, it does 100,000 views a month and it makes $10,000. I can literally look in the history of your website and your Stripe account and see that all rolling right in, right? Small businesses typically have a percentage that's cash. They don't have very clean books. You don't know where the actual monies come from. So you have to do more what's called due diligence on on hard asset businesses than you do these online businesses. But the process is relatively similar. The way they value online businesses is by month, not year. So you'll say, well, this is selling for, you know, uh, 24x. And what they mean is like 24 months of revenue. And so there's some, you know, differences between the two, but I would say the most competitive sites sell pretty quickly because smart buyers really know what they're doing. And again, that industry has been a little bit more commoditized. Mm. Although a business to you and Joel could be a lot different than a business to me. And you could say, hey, we have this podcast and look, there's this tool that helps podcasters, I don't know, reach out to guests. That business only makes $10,000 a year. So it's probably only worth, let's call it 30 to 50K or something like that. But to us, it's actually worth 100K because we're paying somebody to do that right now. And this tool would save me for that too. And so that's where you'll want to get a little bit more into what's your unfair advantage. 
Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. We've that talked. Sense. We didn't talk about that, but that's one of the things you, you've discussed too. So maybe I don't know. Could you give us a quick take on on what you mean by unfair advantage and how? Yeah, how do we figure out what our unfair advantage is? There is a great quote from one of the partners at KKR, and he says, "No conflict, no interest." And I loved that quote because it's how smart smart deal makers do deals. KKR is a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar private equity firm. And what he's basically saying is, if I don't have a conflict, I don't have an interest. And what he means by conflict is, if I don't have an unfair advantage, an unfair insight into this industry, deal, entrepreneur, sector, whatever, I'm not going to do it because I want outsized returns. So let me give you an example. Let's say that Warren Buffett was going to go and buy his railroad company, which was BNSF. When he went to go buy BNSF, a lot of people thought he was nuts for buying that railroad. But what did Warren Buffett probably know that is allowed in public deals before he purchased that company? He knew that uh, pipelines were going to start shipping energy or or oil around the country and BNSF was going to get some contracts for that deal. So he did that deal because he had a conflict. He had an unfair insight into the industry. In the same way that you, Joel and Matt, might know, man, podcasters over the next X period of time are going to do this thing that nobody else realizes, so I'm going to buy this business in advance. Or I'm an accountant, and I know that it's really brutal for other accountants to hire X type of person. So I'm going to buy this outsourcing accountant firm. You want to use whatever the industry is you have unique insight into and say, man, I want to leverage my expertise for an unfair deal. The last thing I'll say is like a good example of this right now would be if I was a realtor and I saw that last month Open Door lost forty lost money on 42% of all deals that they did and that generally across the ecosystem, real estate is coming down in cost, I would probably be thinking, huh, I bet I'm not going to do as well this year in real estate as I did last year. How could I offset the return that I'm making on real estate this year through an acquisition? So I might say, I'm going to buy a property management company because people will still have to have their property managed during a downturn, even if they're not buying or selling. I make money no matter who owns it. Great. That is your unfair advantage. Yeah, I like I, it. yeah, I like it. You got to find out what that is so that you can exploit it, and you, you got to find that edge. Yeah, and you can't basically. you can't succeed in everything, right? You got to kind of pick your niche, and that's how you're going to be able to kind of get those abnormal returns you're talking about. All right, Cody, we've got we got a couple more questions we want to get to, including the power of people, and and also like where you're doing business, how you might need to move in order to get a better advantage. We'll discuss a couple of those things right after this. So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned. And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty or 
you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I got my first life insurance policy almost a decade ago. And hey, I'm still kicking it. I very much hope that trend continues, Matt. And since then, I've actually added coverage via Policy Genius. And if you out there, you're listening and you're worried that this is going to be a massive pain getting life insurance, think again. Policy Genius made it an incredibly easy process. If you have loved ones who rely on you and your income, life insurance is a crucial part of your financial plan. Not only does it provide a financial backstop for your family, it also gives you peace of mind too. Plus, the longer you wait, the more rates go up because life insurance rates typically increase as you get older. So if this is something you've been putting off, it's time to make it happen now. That's right. Yeah. And even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to PolicyGenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com. Hey folks, it's Matt. I've got to tell you about something new I've been trying this year. I've been drinking a little Health Aid kombucha every day, and I feel amazing. It comes in so many delicious flavors, but my favorites so far are Pink Lady Apple and Ginger Lemon. So what exactly is Health Aid kombucha? Well, it is a fermented, bubbly probiotic tea that's good for your gut. It's blended with real fruit juice, and it's super thirst-quenching, a little sweet and a little tangy, and very refreshing. I'm sure you've heard about the importance of gut health and supporting uh, your overall health. It's something I've read up on a good bit over the past year, which is why I've made Health Aid Kombucha a part of my everyday routine. Literally every afternoon, I'll have some. It's super easy, and it's affordable, too. My favorite grocery store, Aldi, they carry it as well. If you want to give it a try and see how great you can feel, look for the brown bottle with an anchor and make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, we are back from the break talking with Cody Sanchez. And Cody, like essentially what we're talking about here is passive income, right? And so I'm curious if you have uh, like an overarching philosophy when it comes to, to passive income, because I feel like that phrase, it gets thrown around a lot, certainly sounds amazing, uh, but it's also not nearly as easy, you know, as the phrase might make it sound. I would love to hear you talk about just your general take on passive income. One of my favorite mentors, David Osborne, said a word to me that I think makes all the difference. He calls it horizontal income instead of passive income. Basically what this means is that this is these are types of income streams like investments, stocks, 
uh, differentiated businesses from your main salary that keep making you money regardless of your day-to-day income in your main vein. Which I So I almost see it like a chart. Like vertical income goes up and down. That's your earned salary. Horizontal income gets layered over whatever it is you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Oh, so I you like only that. have so many hours in a day vertically, right? You could maybe take up eight of those hours with something. But horizontally, you could add as many as you want, right? Because they just continue to stack. I like that because passive income is a misnomer. Unless you're investing in funds, you know, some sort of commingled vehicle, the stock market, somebody else's deal, you're going to be involved in some way, shape, or form. And even for those deals, you're going to be involved in the beginning by at least making sure that the due diligence is right or that the, you, sh- you should do this deal, that it's a good deal. So I don't love that term passive income. What I like to think about is having horizontal income streams that stack. And that is something that these businesses can do over time. You know, I always debate people about this because some people say you should go all in on your main thing. And I think that is true for some people. I do not think that is true for everybody. There are just some outliers out there who should, no matter what, focus hard on the one thing that they're supposed to do because they're going to be the one to 10% that survives in business. But most people numerically, categorically, are not that. And they should have diversified income streams because you need something to fall back on. And I do not think that we should proselytize or make it seem amazing that we're sleeping on floors to achieve our dreams. I don't think that's necessary. And I think you could do it a way that causes a lot less stress for you and your families and your bodies through having horizontal income streams. Yeah, I like that. And like you said, over the years, it doesn't happen over and over the overnight. But as you're stacking up some of those horizontal income streams, they can start to look close to the vertical income stream and eventually replace it, which which is really cool. But yeah, take take some time, take some intentionality. I guess one of my questions too, when you're talking about maybe some of the physical businesses that you've bought, they don't run themselves, right? So you buy a laundromat, but Cody Sanchez isn't going in there and unlocking the doors at 6 a.m. to make sure people can come in and wash their clothes. Like, and and some of these businesses are more labor dependent than others. So how do folks need to think uh, through the putting the right people in place? part of the equation when they're purchasing a business so that they're not stuck being the person who now just got a new job that requires 40 hours a week of their time. 100%. It's the difference between operators and investor owners. An investor owner is somebody who takes money or structures a deal or does something that has infinite return on time, aka my dollars do not have a time constriction, and invest that in a business where then your operator is the person who day-to-day runs it. So I don't want to turn this into a Cinderella fantasy land. For your first deal, you probably are not qualified to be an investor owner. You know, you need to get some reps under your belt. You might have to open the door on your first laundromat because you've never done this type of deal before. You might have to get in the back end of your website for the first website that you buy. But the goal is, is that you do bigger and bigger deals, which have more and more free cash flow in them that allows you to hire people with that free cash flow. So your first deal, you're probably kind of, you know, you're probably really involved or at least kind of involved. And then the more deals you do, the more infrastructure you can build so you don't have to be involved. And that's how Warren Buffett runs businesses that do tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue with a team of 35 
people because yeah. they are overseeing all of their operators inside of those businesses. They are, they have, a, you know, Charlie Munger has an amazing quote, which is, or it might've been Charlie Munger's mentor. He says, uh, when you get a dog, you let it do the barking. And so it's the same with hiring. You know, when you hire an operator, you let them do the operating. Yeah. And that's the difference between the two. I, I, I like it too. Well, Matt and I were mom and pop landlords, right? And it just makes me think like the first property that I bought, I was, I was fixing everything. I was mowing the lawn. I was self-managing. I was doing all the above and in order to make sure that my bottom line was solid so that I could have more money to invest in the next deal. And I just, for, for the first time, hired someone to manage some of my properties. And it's it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm finally at that point uh, now that I'm eight doors into real estate investing. Like, as it grows, you have more opportunity to be able to hire those things out. Whereas the first deal, you're going to need to be more involved. But every successive deal, you can be just a little more, a, a little uh, further away from the operating of, of that business. Yeah, and, and Cody, it seems like that you're not buying and holding forever uh, when it comes to these the different businesses that you have. What is it that makes you uh, want to sell a business that you currently own? Are you just kind of taking advantage of a business that's not valued exactly where it should be, right? Like, so so the arbitrage, you've quoted Warren Buffett a bunch, so he calls those the, the cigar butts. Are you doing that? Or are you looking for some different businesses that can provide you that cash flow over time? I think the cigar butt strategy, which basically was like, can you take the last pulls off a business that people aren't thinking about? Like, is there something left and something that people think is dead? Is actually a really tough strategy to do uh, if you are not super skilled. An, an analogy to this is there's something called a turnaround company, which is basically you buy a company that's not doing well right now, and you're like, I'm the white knight, I'm the savior, I'm coming in to turn this bad boy around, and we're you know going to make it profitable again. Those, I think, are not great for newbies, and here's why. Because whenever, and you guys know this as property managers, have you uh, bought a house that's a fixer-upper, gone into construction for it, fixed up the fi fixer upper and done it under budget and uh, faster than you thought you would. Right, <laughs> doesn't happen. Doesn't happen, right? Same thing for a business. It's just gonna take longer and be more expensive than you anticipate. So start with buying the nice house on a great street that you understand and think you can help appreciate uh, or cash flow off of as is, as opposed to a turnaround. The main you know strategy that I use to decide if I wanna buy, uh, keep a business or if I wanna sell a business is just, is the business worth it from a, an ROI perspective? So you know, for my businesses, if the business will do at least $100,000 in free cash flow to me and I don't have to spend time on the business, I'll keep it. But that number keeps creeping up and the more they ask of me and the more I have to do within the business, if it's not one of my main ones, I'll probably divest or I'll sell it. And I'll let somebody else go take that perfectly sized business for them and run it and then I'll take that money and I'll put it into a bigger deal. Just like you would 1031 exchange a piece of real estate. Yeah, it makes sense that the fundamentals need to be solid. You can't just decide to come in there and just your magic touch. Like you're not going to have the Midas touch and be able to necessarily turn something around, especially as a noob. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, well I always chuckle too with like the 24 year olds. They're like, I'm going to buy this plumbing company. I'm going to take it to $10 million. It's only doing $300,000 right now. And I'm like, have you ever managed plumbers? Have you ever been in a plumbing job? Do you know anything about the industry? And it's okay to not know all that stuff, but come in with no hubris. Be like, this mm. business is doing X. 
I think I believe X and I can continue X. If we can add more to it, awesome. But let's just make sure that we understand it as is first. Yeah, that's a good point. Or else you could lose a lot of money if you if you are shooting for the moon when in all likelihood, that plumbing company, you're not going to be able to like 50x. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that's a tough endeavor. But uh, Cody, this has been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. And where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're up to? I think the best place for that is probably contrarianthinking.com. We have a free newsletter on there uh, all about different ways to cash flow and interesting um, industries, et cetera. Same with unconventionalacquisitions.com. Apparently, we like vowels. And then uh, (laughs) anywhere on the socials, Cody Sanchez, I'm all over them, you know, TikTok and Instagram and whatever we do on the internet. Love it. Awesome. Thank you. And yeah, your newsletter is is a must read for anybody who wants to like deep dive even further into these topics and get specific examples on a weekly basis of cool stuff you could be doing That's really to cool. in- increase your income. Exactly. So yeah, yeah the, I, the ability, I love the space you're in. The ability that you have to open folks' minds as to what's possible. I think that's the, the biggest takeaway as folks are hopefully considering what owning an, their own business might look like. For it sure. doesn't necessarily have to look like the the job that they've had for the past 5, 10, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, I think you're doing a, a great job with that, Cody. Thank you so much uh, for Thank joining you. us today on the, on, the, uh, on the podcast. This is a blast, guys. You made it super easy. Thanks for having me. All right, Matt. I love that conversation. I feel like I'm totally picking up what Cody's putting down. Yeah, I yeah. think uh, she is she is one of the only people that I know of in this space talking about how people can change their lives by buying other people's businesses. And That's true. like yeah. we talked about for just a second, demographically, there is there is more opportunity than ever to take part in this bonanza <laughs> that is buying other businesses and being able to, yeah, pay your bills and, and eventually leave your job. Yeah, specifically, there are three ways that are leading to this being That's a right. fantastic time to, to consider this. For sure. I can't wait to read that book when it comes out. But what was your big takeaway from this combo? Yeah, so as we were just kind of talking through a lot, I mean, we, we kind of dug into a lot of good meat, which I really appreciate. Um, but I think there might be some folks who are thinking, and holy cow, I feel so incredibly overwhelmed. And how, how am I supposed to know if me buying somebody else's business or even being a business owner myself, if that's something that I want to do. And earlier on in the conversation, I can't remember what we were talking about, but she, <laughs> I didn't like zone out or anything, but I can't remember what she was responding to specifically, but she was talking about how of all the people that she's hired like hundreds, if not thousands, she hires people based on desire. I think that was um, when we were talking about second generation immigrants. Was that, oh, was right? that it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So like, and she said, you can't teach that. You can't teach desire. Uh, you can't teach curiosity. And so if you have an innate curiosity, if you have a desire to be your own boss, to run your own business, to figure out what it takes to own a business right now in the moment, I wouldn't worry so much about all the specifics of what it takes to find and locate uh, and hone in on a successful business because those are all things that you can figure out. If you have that desire though, I almost see that as a litmus test that, okay, you are likely going to be a good candidate uh, for somebody to, to purchase a business or to own your own business. But if you're listening to this and maybe you are like, okay, yeah, thinking about all the different things, you know, matching up their historical tax returns to their current profit and loss statement. Maybe you're thinking through all the nuts and bolts and you're thinking, I got all that. That's that's no big deal. But if you have no desire, if you have no curiosity, you might have all the fundamentals down. But if you don't truly want to do this, then I don't know if this is going to be a good, <laughs> a good opportunity. I don't think this is uh, going to be a good path for you to yeah. take. I will say too, I think you can foster some of that curiosity. I don't think, I think hmm. sometimes it's innate. There's a lot of that that, that is just kind of, 
instinctual, but that is also something that you can prod in yourself if you're, if you're interested. Uh, if you, some if personal you, development that might lead to you taking some steps right. that you otherwise wouldn't. If you've got an inkling that to well. go in that direction, there is work that you can do to kind of push yourself to, like, I've become interested in all sorts of things I never thought I would be interested in. And as I kind of give into that desire and I listen to content or I'm, I'm following other people who are doing cool stuff in that space, it gets me excited about maybe participating. So, right. yeah, I, I think that, that, that you can find maybe that desire even if you're like i don't know if i see it now well don't push it you don't have to go get started right now even though you don't feel it but you can foster it along the way and then maybe partake later on down the road yeah i do think there's a difference though between interest in something and a desire to learn yeah i feel like you've always probably had a desire or that curiosity even though you might say to yourself well i've never cared about world war ii (laughs) uh but then all of a sudden because you have that desire because you are curious you realize oh man this is now something that interests me i I did not used to be interested in this but now i am i I do hear what you're saying though i I think there are ways for us to kind of cultivate that within ourselves and i think what cody was saying is that second generation immigrants kind of naturally have some of this it's instinctual based on what these kids have seen their parents go through which makes sense to me i think my big takeaway was when she said more complexity equals more opportunity and i think that is completely true uh there is there is the potential for outsized returns when you're uh, endeavoring to get into a space that fewer people are interested in, in getting into at all like how many people are talking about buying car washes and laundromats like not many people right uh, cody is one of the few people out there talking about this as a viable business strategy but because there's not a lot of attention there not everybody is trying to there's not like shows on hgtv endless ones about house there are endless <laughs> ones about house flipping but there's not endless ones about buying a laundromat exactly. you know what i'm saying yeah. and so because of that because of the fact that they're more complex or more boring there is the ability for people to make more money getting into that business so uh, the numbers can be better they can work out uh, more to your advantage if you're getting into something that, that you have to have a little bit of extra knowledge and a little bit of extra gumption to get into. Totally. Yeah. I love it, man. All right. Let's uh, get to the beer. You and I enjoyed an open space haze. This is not surprisingly a hazy IPA. Another beer by Bosque Brewing Company. What were your thoughts on this one? Yeah, man. I'm going to say this one was kind of a classic hazy style yeah. beer. I, I feel like it's solid. If it was a six pack version, I could have this in my fridge all the time. Yeah. It was just very drinkable, but also like a uh, nice, sweet, delicious IPA. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. It didn't have like one of those overly complex, hoppy backbones. Uh, it drank fairly clean for a hazy IPA. Uh, really delicious. I'm glad you and I were able to enjoy this one on the show. We will make sure to link to some of the different resources that Cody mentioned during our interview up in our show notes for this episode up at howtomoney.com. That's right. But Matt, that's going to do it. So until next time, best friends out. Best friends out. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Upswell Marketing would like to remind listeners that most people don't belong to two gyms. They don't see two dentists or trust two auto repair shops. So when customers choose your small business over your competitors, they're really choosing you. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads. And in fact, that formula and media mix has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. And new customers receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. Hey, it's Matt here for Health Aid Kombucha. This bubbly probiotic tea blended with real fruit juice is deliciously thirst-quenching and great for your gut health. Health Aid Kombucha comes in many flavors like Pink Lady Apple, Passion Fruit Tangerine, and Ginger Lemon, which is one of my favorites since it has that extra ginger kick. I'm a big fan, though the kids prefer the, the mango lemonade. It's organic, it's non-GMO, and a great alternative to sodas and other sugary drinks. Just look for the brown bottle with an anchor in your local stores. Give it a try today. Make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you.